Well, let's open with prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you give us eyes to see your ways, humble us before your mighty hand and your mighty truth, and open our hearts that we may be transformed by your absolute word of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, we saw a battle that was started by Saul's son, his eldest son, Jonathan. And Jonathan, with his armor bearer, went off on a special, um, a special operation, a special military operation, where the two of them went off and attacked a garrison, a garrison of the Philistines. And the, the rest of the Israelite army was holed up in Gibeah with Saul, the, the 600 or so of the Israelite soldiers. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer leave Gibeah, go over the cliff, and, and then up the other side of the cliff near the Philistine garrison at Michmash. And the two of them do what seems ridiculous it seems like a foolhardy thing. Two, two men attacking an entire garrison, hand-to-hand combat. But it was a necessary and bold move because the Philistines had amassed a huge army. The Israelite army was scattered. They were in fear. They were deserting. And so Jonathan, unlike his father, trusts the Lord. And so we saw the, the four great statements of faith that Jonathan made in chapter 14 last time. He made two statements in verse 6, and one in verse 10, and one in verse 12. And so the Lord honored Jonathan's faith, and he gave him victory in the face of impossible odds. He gave him victory over the Philistines. He actually sent an earthquake, we saw last time, to help Jonathan, and he created the Lord created this confusion in the camp of the Philistines. Saul, who is, as I say, holed up in Gibeah, his men see the confusion in the Philistine camp. They inform Saul, and Saul, being the great leader that he was, he dithers. He just waits. He delays. He says, well, what, what, what am I going to do? I think I'm going to call the Ark. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant here. Let's get the high priest here, and let's have a prayer meeting. Let's pray about what to do. There's a time to pray and there's a time to act. And Saul always had known, because Samuel had informed him, that God's purpose for Saul was to remove the Philistines from the land of Israel. Saul knows that his son and his armor bearer are out there fighting by themselves. He knows that they need support. And Saul, because he's, he elevates ritual religious ritual over obedience to God, he dithers and he delays. Ultimately, Saul figures out that the right thing to do is to take his army and to go attack because the Philistines are in a position of disarray due to the earthquake and the, the work of Jonathan and his armor bearer. And so Saul finally decides to attack and God, sure enough, gives Israel a great victory. God creates more uh, confusion in the camp of the, of the Philistines, and the Philistines actually start attacking each other, which is uh, a result of God's action. 
That's just by way of review of what we saw last time. Now, beginning in verse 24 of chapter 14, we get the backstory of what was going on when it came to Saul's attack, even though it was a slow, delayed attack. We get the backstory of what's going on behind the scenes about, uh, with this battle. This is a backstory about the foolishness of Saul because of his pride and how God delivered victory not because of Saul, but despite of Saul, despite, despite Saul's foolishness and his focus on self as opposed to obedience to the Lord. So let's get to our passage. Chapter 14, verse 24 reads like this. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Here Saul, there's really no other word to use, gives a stupid oath. There's really no other word to use. This is, this is a, an absurd oath because he needs men, his soldiers, to chase the enemy. We're going to see that they chase them roughly 17 miles. He needs them to go on a 17-mile hike with their gear, and then he needs them to engage in hand-to-hand combat. This is not a, uh, an Air Force, uh, a member of the Air Force with a, with a little joystick controlling a, a drone from 3,000 miles away from the battlefield. This is hand-to-hand combat where you need an incredible amount of energy. And so Saul says, I'm going to deprive the soldiers, my soldiers, of their energy, of their nutrition, and you can't eat it all until you avenge my name. Because it's Saul's name that Saul is interested in avenging. His order here is based on his pride. He says, no food until I have avenged myself on my enemies. Saul thought that the battle was his. Saul thought that this was about vindicating his name. But of course, as his son, Jonathan understood the battle was the Lord's. And it was about vindicating the Lord's name. Pride always, always makes us dumb. Pride always makes us foolish. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 29, 23. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. So his troops, we're told in verse 24, are hard-pressed. The Hebrew word for hard-pressed means oppressed. And that's why you see in verse 28 that they're weary, and in verse 31 that they're very weary. The Hebrew there for this concept of weariness means a lack of energy. And you say, well, of course. Saul is depriving them of the physical nutrition that they need to fight the enemy. And then as the verses go on, the story gets worse. Look at verse 25 of chapter 14. All the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. This isn't saying that, that the forest is full of flowing honey, you know, like, like, like a river that's flowing. It's saying that the honeycombs that were, you know, in, in particular areas of the forest, there were bees, and those bees made their honeycombs. And in those honeycombs, it was rich with honey, and the honey flowed out of the tree and even down the tree 
onto the soil. Look at verse 27. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore, he put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. You see where this story is going, right? Keep reading in verse 28. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, meaning the troops under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Verse 29, Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. Jonathan recognizes the wrongness of his father's vow. And he says, My father has troubled the land. The word there for troubled is the Hebrew word ahar, and it's the the cow stem. It has this idea of bringing disaster or ruin. The last time in the Bible that, or I should say, the prior time when this verb ahar is used is in the book of Judges. It's used in the book of Judges for the foolish judge Jephthah. And then it goes silent, it goes quiet. And then the next time you find this Hebrew verb, ahar, with respect to the cow stem, is here in our passage. Because we're getting a glimpse that Saul has a lot of the characteristics of the foolish judge, Jephthah. You remember Jephthah? Jephthah made the rash vow that whatever came out of his home, he would sacrifice to the Lord. He's off fighting against the enemies of Israel, and he makes this unnecessary vow to God because he views God with this paganized view of God, and he makes this vow to God that he didn't have to make. He makes it rashly, and he says, God, if you give me victory, then when I get home in celebration, whatever comes out of the door of my house, I will sacrifice it to the Lord. And sure enough, to the Lord, I'll sacrifice it to you. And when he comes home, it's not a sheep that walks out of his house. It's his daughter who walks through the door of his house. And so you have this terrible description in Judges chapter 11, verse 35. When Jephthah saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. Same Hebrew word. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. Of course he could take it back. Of course, he, he would have sinned by giving the rash vow, but then he should have borne the responsibility for his sin, for his rash vow. And he should, have, he should have suffered the responsibility as opposed to going through with the human sacrifice of his own daughter. Jephthah had a paganized view of God, and so he gave this rash, foolish vow, and he even fulfilled the foolish vow, thinking that God would have been satisfied with human sacrifice Sadly, we're going to see King Saul, who has a lot of similarities to this same foolish judge. In verse 30, Jonathan explains what is so bad about his father's vow. Look at verse 30. He says, How much more, if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found? For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. You see, Jonathan is disturbed by his father's vow because it contradicted God's will. God's will was for Saul to defeat the Philistines, to remove the Philistines from the land. And so now the victory is hindered 
because Saul gives this stupid vow with respect to his soldiers, and so his soldiers' ability to remove the Philistines is weakened. His soldiers' ability to fulfill the will of God, that the Philistines be removed from the land, is hindered. Not that God's will can ever be thwarted. It can't. But people can defeat their own ability to follow the will of God, and that's what's happening. In putting his name before God's name, Saul putting his own name before God's name, he was working at cross-purposes with God. Their victory could have and should have been much stronger, much more significant than the victory they had over the Philistines. But here, Saul hindered Israel's victory that should have been incredible. It was a good victory, but it could have been exponentially greater. Although Saul wanted to get rid of the Philistines, his actions were motivated by his pride, and so his actions produced a result that was inconsistent with the will of God. Look at verse 31. They struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very weary. Aijalon here, this is the map that we've been using for this conflict. Here's Michmash, here's Gibeah. And this conflict happens kind of in this region. Aijalon is over here, about 17 miles to the west. And so the troops, Saul's troops, have to hike it 17 miles to the west on empty bellies because of this foolish order, this foolish oath that he gave. And then they engage in, in their combat there. The men are very weary and they are ravenous. By the time they get there, keep reading in verse 32. The people, the people here are the troops. The people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. This is this grotesque scene where they slaughter the animals and they eat the meat raw of these animals because they are ravenous themselves. What's happened is it's now nighttime. Because remember in verse 24, Saul said, until evening. So it's now evening. The vow's finished. They're, they're, they're not under the oath anymore. And so Saul's oath has not only limited their ability to engage in warfare, but it, it, it has created a situation where you have troops acting like animals, eating, these, eating the, the livestock the way an animal, the way a predator would eat a livestock, a sheep or a goat or an ox. Under the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 17, you were to drain the blood first before you ate an animal. It was against the law to eat blood. So, you know, in England they have the blood pudding, thank you, and that's blood, right? Leviticus 17 said, no, 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 no. You don't consume the blood of an animal because in the, in the, the blood of the, land, the animal is, is, is its soul. And so here the, the troops disregard Leviticus 17 and they slaughter these animals and they eat them raw. Saul is troubled by this. He's disturbed by this. Look at verse 33. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Let's go a little bit further than that. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. 
and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, let us draw near to God here. What Saul is doing is trying to transform the scene from a gruesome eating frenzy into a worship service with animal sacrifices. So he says, roll a great stone here. If it's a big enough stone, then when they slaughter the animal, the blood of the animal will, will roll off the, 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 the stone and the blood of the animal will be drained. That's why, that's why he's asking for a stone and he builds an altar there to the Lord, actually to thank the Lord for the victory of the Philistines that they've had that day. In, a, in the situation with an altar, the animal is killed and... Uh, and, and part of the animal is burned to the Lord, like the fat of the animal, and then the rest of the animal is eaten. You have a priest here. We know from verse 36 that the priest is there, and so it's not as if Saul is violating the law like he did in the prior chapter where he offered sacrifices himself because he, he wasn't waiting for Samuel. Here there's a priest who's offering these sacrifices, but what we learn in this passage that I just read is that this is the first altar that Saul has built. That's not a good indicator because Saul has been, he's, he, he was anointed two years earlier. And this is the first time that he has built an altar in thankfulness to the Lord. Keep reading in verse 36. Well, let's, just look, uh, let's just look at 36 one more time. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Saul probably realized that his bad decisions meant that his victory was less than what it could have been. And so his earlier delay and his denying food of the troops has made him think, I messed up here. So now let's go after the Philistines. We've got them on the run. We've got them in a, in a vulnerable position. And it's the priest who says, hold on a second. Let's consult God first. It's not Saul who says that. That's probably the high priest, Ahijah, from verse 3. And so probably the high priest is taking out the Umim and the Thummim. We've seen that before. Those are... They're almost like lots, almost like dice, and the high priest would throw them, and he'd ask God, is this what you want me to do? And if the, if the umim and the thumim went one direction, it meant yes, and it went, if it went another direction, it meant no. That's, that's kind of the, the, the context of what's going on here. Look at verse 37. Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them to me? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. God's refusal to answer Saul makes him suspicious. It makes him suspicious that somebody has violated the oath that he put everybody under. Look at verse 38. Saul said, Draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. Saul calls 
the violation of his oath was sin. He describes someone, if a soldier violated his oath, he describes it as a sin. Was it really a sin? Or was it an oath that the, that the king required? He's equating violation of his oath with violation of the law. And we'll see in a moment, he even means a, an unknowing violation of his oath. He views that as a sin as well. Keep reading in verse 39. Saul says, For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, for the, as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is Jonathan, my son, he, sh- he shall surely die. But not one of all the people answered him. Here is foolish oath number two. And it's odd that Saul would specifically call out his son, would specifically mention his son, Jonathan. He doesn't know that it's Jonathan, at least not yet. He will. He doesn't know that it's Jonathan. But what he does know is that Jonathan was off fighting with his armor bearer when he gave the oath. When Saul put the troops under the oath, Jonathan was off actually engaging in combat when Saul and the rest of the army were holed up quaking in their boots and in their sandals in Gibeah. So Saul knows that his son didn't hear the oath when it was issued. But even in this situation, Saul says, if, my, if it's my son who violated the oath, regardless of the fact that it would have been an unknowing violation, he should be killed. What Saul is doing is he's looking more and more like the foolish judge, Jephthah, because for Saul, his pride is priority number one. Look at verse 40. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Verse 41, therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken but the people escaped. Saul said, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son, and Jonathan was taken. Here's what this means. Saul gathered everybody. Saul gathered all the troops, including his son Jonathan, and they cast lots. They cast lots among everybody, and everybody else was excluded because the lot didn't fall on them. So there are just two people left, Saul and Jonathan. Then they cast lots between those two, and it's Jonathan. So Saul knows, everybody knows, it's Jonathan who violated the oath. It may have been an unknowing violation, but it's Jonathan who violated the oath. The Lord moved the lot so that it pointed to Jonathan. Because what the Lord is going to do is take these events and expose Saul's foolishness to the people. The Lord's going to expose Saul's poor leadership, lack of wisdom, and his pride to his kingdom. Look at verse 43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die. In the Hebrew, this statement from Jonathan can be read as a statement or as a question. In other words, it can be read as, yes, I ate a little honey, now I must die. Or yes, I ate a little honey, now I must die? It can be read either way in the Hebrew. Look what happens in verse 44. Saul said, May God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die 
Jonathan. This is the third oath from Saul, the third foolish, unwise, even sinful, evil oath from Saul. He has consistently elevated ritual over obedience, religious ritual over obedience. God values obedience more than he values us going to church. God values obedience more than he values us studying and pr- studying the Bible and praying. Obedience is what God demands. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't go to church, we shouldn't study the Bible, we shouldn't pray. Of course, we should do all those things. It's just the outward activity God doesn't value. God values what's in the heart and the outward activity God sees through, whether we're, we're, we're posers and we're fakers or whether we're actually worshiping the Lord, submitting to Kim. And so what Saul has been doing is he has been consistently elevating outward observance of religious ritual over obedience. At the beginning of the chapter, of this chapter, chapter 14, he asked for the ark and the high priest to be brought so he could pray as opposed to attacking the Philistines like he should have. Now, today, as we've gone through chapter 14, Saul put his troops under a no-food oath. He put himself under an oath that he would kill anybody who violated his no-food oath. And now here he makes another oath where he swears by the name of God to kill Jonathan. Really what he's saying in this verse is, there's going to be punishment for me. That's why he talks about himself. Look at that in verse 44 again. Saul said, may God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. What he's saying is, if I don't execute you, Jonathan, then I'm going to be severely punished. I mean, you've got to love a dad like that, huh? What a dad. Right? I'm going to be severely punished because I've done this oath. I'm not going to fulfill the oath. And so I must fulfill the oath, which is to say I must execute you because you violated the oath. It's very similar to, to, to Jephthah in the book of Judges. This phrase, you shall surely die, is the Hebrew phrase, mot tamut. It shows up very early in the Bible. Mot tamut, you shall surely die. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Early in the Bible, in the book of Genesis? Genesis 2, verse 17, where God says to the man, if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of evil, you shall surely die. I don't know, is, is, is Saul equating his word with on the same level, his oath on the same level as the word of God itself? It seems that way. And so Saul in his foolishness is adamant that Jonathan must die. Fortunately for Jonathan, Saul is a weak leader. And so his ruling will be immediately reversed. Look at verse 45. But the people said to Saul, the troops in other words, Must Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. In verse 36, when Saul wanted to pursue the Philistines by night, the troops said to the king, Do whatever seems good to you. In verse 40, when Saul called for lots to be drawn, the troops said, do what seems good to you. But now the troops say, no more. No more of what seems good 
to you. They know that Saul's decision to kill Jonathan is absurd. They know that Jonathan is the one who obeyed God, and that's why you see this phrase, he has worked with God this day. They know that it's Jonathan who brought the victory, and that's why you see the phrase, he brought about this great deliverance. So the troops refuse Saul's order. They make their own vow. You see the vow that they make there. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground. Saul's leadership is toast because he's been exposed. God has exposed his foolishness, which is a product of his pride. Saul's kingdom will not endure. Keep reading in verse 46. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Here's what's happened. Saul's drama, the drama that he created, the unnecessary drama of depriving his troops from the physical sustenance that they needed, the energy that they needed, that slowed them down. So they were not able to give the great victory that they could have had between that and his drama with trying to execute his son because his son unknowingly violated the vow that was a stupid vow in the first place for Saul to give. All of this drama has created a situation where the advantage that the Israelites had over the Philistines has evaporated. The military advantage is is gone, and so now it's too late to be able to pursue and destroy the Philistines. That's kind of the, the situation that we're in, and then the text shifts and gives us a description of various conquests of Saul. All of his, his military activities were not totally ineffective. Look at verse 47. Here we get a shift in terms of descriptions of all of his different military activities. Now, when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Saul had many military successes And so we're getting this description in this text of these different areas. First, we have Moab. Remember, this is is Israel here. Saul, the capital is Gibeah right around here. So the writer of 1 Samuel is telling us that Saul defeated the Moabites. Saul defeated the Ammonites. Saul defeated Aram, the, the Aramites. Saul defeated the Philistines over here in Philistia. And Saul defeated the Amalekites. Here in the south, the Amalekites are in a a desert area that is to the south, kind of south, south, southwest of Israel. It's an area of that of Canaan called the Negev. And we'll see Saul's victory over the Amalekites in chapter 15. And like his other victories, it'll be a victory, but it'll be tainted. It'll be tainted by his disobedience from God. What's missing in this description about these various military conquests that Saul has from all these neighbors, these enemies of Israel, what's missing is any reference to the Lord. Because it says Saul defeated this one and this one and this one and this one, but there's no reference to Yahweh in that listing. With King David, it'll be very different. With King David, there's always a description, and the Lord was with David. Like in 2 Samuel 8, 6, remember, the book is pointing 
to the need for David. 2 Samuel 8, 6. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. 2 Samuel 8, 14. David put garrisons in Edom. In all Edom he put garrisons, and the Edomites became servants to David. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. Saul is not interested in the Lord. I mean, he's interested in the rituals. He's interested in the religious activity. But the reason he's interested in that is because he wants to manipulate the Lord. He wants to play the Lord. He wants to play Him. So that by, if I do these sacrifices, then God, I got you in a box. If I pray, and if I bring the ark here, and I bring the high priest here, then I can use you. I can control you, God, because I'm doing the things that you say in your, in your law that we're supposed to do. Saul doesn't want to submit to God. David, on the other hand, is a man after the Lord's own heart, as we saw introduced, that phrase introduced in chapter 13, meaning David seeks God's will. Then we get a description of Saul's fam- family in the next few verses. Look at verse 49. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishvi and Malchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn Merab and the name of the younger Michal. Michal is the first wife of David. Verse 50. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz, and the name of the captain of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. It was customary in those days when you listed the military conquest of a king, of some leader, you'd also describe the royal family, the royal court. And that's what we're getting here in these few verses. Look at verse 52. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul. And when Saul and when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached him to his staff. We're seeing two things in verse 52. Number one, Saul never fulfilled God's will for his life. He never fulfilled chapter 9, verse 16, which was that Saul was to remove the Philistines. God's purpose for Saul was to remove the Philistines from the land of Israel. That was never fulfilled by Saul. David, the next king, would come along and do that. And the second thing we're seeing in verse 52 is the writer is telegraphing that a brave man will soon join Saul's service, and that brave man will be David in a couple of chapters. Then in chapter 15, we see Saul's continued disobedience, and God will finally reject him. Chapter 15, verse 1, reads like this. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Here Saul, excuse me, Samuel is saying, I'm about to tell you something that's very important. And so he's recounting how he's the one who anointed Saul. He, through God's power, anointed Saul king. I'm speaking for God, is what Samuel is telling Saul. Listen up. Obey what I'm about to tell you, is what Samuel is instructing the king. Look at verse 2. This is the instruction from God through Samuel. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts. Whenever you see that phrase, whenever you see the Lord of hosts, which is the Lord of the armies, hosts is an old, old English word for armies, something very significant is, is coming because it's a statement of the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the absolute control of God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. God tells Saul to kill all of them, to kill the combatants, the non-combatants, the livestock, the adults, the children, the horses, the mules, the oxen, the sheep, everything that breathes, God says, through Samuel to Saul to kill him. All of the Amalekites, utterly destroy them, is the phrase here. It's the Hebrew verb haram in the hithil stem. Literally, it means to put something under the ban. In other words, the Amalekites and everything that they have is under the ban. It's, it belongs to God. It is separated under God for judgment. Sometimes something can be separated under God for holiness. Like we're, That's what holy means. We're separated to God for holiness. This is not separated to God for something good like holiness. This is separated unto God for destruction. That's what this phrase utterly destroy means. We've studied this before, but it's been a while, so I want to spend a few minutes on this. The old Oxford Dictionary, which is called the Lexico Dictionary, describes and defines genocide like this. It's the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. Under that definition, there is no question that God was ordering Saul and the Israelites to engage in genocide. And it's not just for the Amalekites. It's for the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. God gave the order of genocide for all of them. And this is why the university professor, this is why the culture says, see, I told you God's bad. I told you God is evil. I told you you shouldn't follow God because he's a genocidal God. Right? You see, what the culture does is they are thieves. They're thieves. They steal. They steal the things of God. Because the only reason the culture knows anything about right and wrong, about good and bad, is because God defines good and bad. God defines that which is right and wrong. God defines good and evil. And so they take the concept of good and evil and they use their sense of justice and they apply it to God. Really what they're doing, what the atheist does here in this context is the atheist claims to be God. Right? The culture claims to be God. When the university professor comes in and says, look how genocidal, how evil, how bad God is, you shouldn't follow him. What the university professor is doing is he's claiming to be God. 
He's claiming to have been omniscient, to be omniscient, to know what the facts were from 3,000 years ago, from 3,500 years ago. To know what the facts were that brought God to the order of genocide. Let's, let, look, let, let, let's not tiptoe around. It, it is genocide. It is. But let's understand the context. And of course, God is not wrong. Of course, God is not evil. Of course, God is not bad. And I'm going to explain to you why. And so what happens here is that the culture claims the attributes of God for themselves. They claim to know what the facts were from 3,000 or 3,500 years ago. They claim to be omniscient. They claim to be just, to know justice. And that is why they claim, they assert that God is unjust in his order to put the Amalekites or the Perizzites or the Hivites or the Canaanites under the ban. You see, here's what is conveniently forgotten in the conversation. What's conveniently omitted in the accusation that God is an evil, genocidal God. What's omitted and intentionally forgotten is that these peoples, the Canaanites, Amalekites are part of the Canaanites, they were part of the land of Canaan. The peoples of the land in Canaan engaged in grotesque, grotesque evil. And it began with them burning their babies, sacrificing their babies to pagan gods. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, there Moses said, when you enter the land, he's talking to the people, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes a son or daughter pass through the fire one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead, the Canaanites, which include the, included the Amalekites, not only sacrifice their babies to their foreign gods by throwing them into the fire alive, alive, they not only sacrificed their babies, but they engaged in witchcraft and summoned the dead. Verse 12, whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. The reason that God ordered the Israelites to put the Canaanites, including the Amalekites, under the ban to utterly destroy all of them is because of their great wickedness and to protect Israel from that wickedness. Please turn in your Bibles to Leviticus Leviticus chapter 18. I want you to see God's instruction to the people. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. This is the first of four times that God will warn the Israelites in chapter 18 alone not to do what the Canaanites did. Look at verse 4. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am 
the Lord. Now the Lord shifts and describes the wickedness of the Canaanites. He begins with incest. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Uncover nakedness is a, is a nice way of saying having sexual relations. God then provides a list of the various types of incest that the Canaanites, including the Amalekites, engaged in. He begins with relations with parents. Verse 7, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. God then addresses siblings. Verse 9, the nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. Then God addresses grandchildren. This is part of the wickedness of the Canaanites, that they engaged in this kind of incest. Look at verse 10. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover, for their nakedness is yours. And then the list of the types of incest that the Canaanites engaged in goes on and on. Jump to verse 19. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be, filed with her, to be defiled with her. That's adultery. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Moloch. There's child sacrifice again. Nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. That's homosexuality. Verse 23. And you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. That's bestiality. Verse 24. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. That's the Canaanites, the Amalekites the Hittites, the Jebusites, all the various ites. Verse 25, For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled. Verse 28. So that the land will not spew you out should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which, you have, which have been practiced before you, so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. But God is not just a God of wrath. He's also a God of mercy. You see his wrath, his judgment that's described here in Leviticus, but he's also a God of mercy. He gave the Canaanites time, time to repent, centuries, four centuries to repent. Look at his words back to Abram in Genesis 15, verse 13. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, that's Egypt, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Then verse 16, Then in the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite. Amorite's another way of saying Canaanite. All the people of the land of Canaan is not yet complete. 
God gave them time to repent and time to repent and more time and more time and more time in his mercy. He is a God of wrath. He is also a God of mercy and he's also a God of justice. He gives us time to repent, right? In the year 2022, he gives us time to repent. He gives our nation, our culture time to repent and we mock him for it because he doesn't drop the hammer. We think it's all good. I can engage in any of those abominations that are just described in Leviticus. And it's all good because he doesn't drop the hammer because he gives us time to repent. He gave the people of the land of Canaan time to repent and then he dropped the hammer and he used the Israelites to be his vessel of of judgment. God is a God of omniscience. He knew what was happening then. We have no idea. The university professor has no idea of the details from 3,000 years ago from 3,500 years ago. God is a God of justice, and God is a God of mercy. And he ordered the Canaanites, which includes the Amalekites, to be put under the ban because of all three elements of his character. God's justice demanded judgment for sin. That type of extreme wickedness. God's omniscience knew all the details of the judgment that was needed, all the details of their wickedness and all the details of the judgment that their wickedness deserved. And God also showed them mercy. He showed mercy to the Canaanite, giving them four centuries to repent. And he showed mercy to the Israelites. He showed mercy to the Israelites. God ordering the Israelites to put the Canaanites under the ban was merciful to the Israelites so that the Israelites would not adopt the practices of the Canaanites. But of course, the Israelites didn't follow the order because they compromised on the order just like Saul will compromise on the order they didn't fully follow the word of God and there will be consequences as there always are for rebellion and refusal to follow God's word now I should say that order that genocidal order which is what it was let's not tiptoe around it it was But that genocidal order that God gave to the Israelites was specific in that time, that era, for the Canaanites, which includes the Amalekites. And so I believe it is evil and wrong for a nation to engage in genocide today. Let's just be clear. I want there to be no confusion about that. I believe that it is wrong and evil for any modern nation to engage in genocide Because we don't receive a command like this that was a unique command to Israel in a unique era with respect to the unique people of the land of Canaan. Now one last thing with respect to the Amalekites. The Amalekites fit within this umbrella of the Canaanites. And so they fit with all all of this wickedness that merited being put under the ban, but there's something worse with respect to the Amalekites because as bad as all that wickedness was, they did something worse because the Amalekites were the first nation to attack Israel. As Israel is in the Exodus, they leave Egypt. The Amalekites, Amalek, is the first to attack them and their attacks are are vicious because they, they attack the weak part of the line You know, you've got literally millions of Israelites who are leaving. And so they attack the stragglers, the ones who are in the back, the ones who are tired, the ones who are most vulnerable. 
And so this prompted God to bring justice against the Amalekite. God promised justice with respect to their behavior, and God always keeps his word. Exodus 17, 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. In Exodus 17, the Amalekites attack the Israelites as they're vulnerable, as they're leaving, as they're wandering in the wilderness. And remember that story, the, the Israelites fight with the Amalekites and Moses goes up on the hill, and they have to hold Moses' arms up, so he holds up the staff. And as long as he holds up the staff, the Israelites win. And so he's, he's old, he's tired, and so they hold up his arms because he can't hold it up. And when he drops his arm, the Israelites start losing, so, so they, they hold his arms up. But this is part of the judgment that God gives with respect to the Amalekites in Exodus seventeen fourteen. He's instructing Joshua because it's Joshua who's going to lead the people into the land. And so before the next generation, remember the the generation that left, left Egypt, they died in the wilderness after wandering 40 years. And it was their kids, everybody who was who was less than 20, who would be the the generation that Joshua would would lead in. Before the next generation entered the land, Moses reminded them not to forget about this. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget This was Moses' warning to the people to not forget the judgment. And so the judgment, the justice that God issued with respect to the Amalekites, he has commissioned Saul to fulfill that judgment in 1 Samuel chapter 15. But Saul will disobey as Saul often does. With that, we'll finish this evening and we'll see the rest of chapter 15 next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we approach you as your, as your children. We acknowledge that we are fallen, broken sinners before you, and we, we approach you in awe and wonder. We fear you, and we love you. We praise you because you are an awesome God, a God to be approached in wonder. We ask that you implant your word in our souls, transform us by it, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.